Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. This is Bloomberg Intelligence. We're really getting into now the streaming arms race. This is looking at that and saying we can really build a nice niche for ourselves. In-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. The dollar is the dominant concept in the planet. I think the acquisition is a natural progression of what Microsoft can do with this technology going forward. Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Over the next hour, we are going to dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets. Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. Today, we're going to take a look at Adobe's valuation plunge and just how it's going to alter the nature of tech funds' core holdings. Plus, we talk Ferrari. It has a new SUV out, and it is extraordinarily profitable. First, though, let's talk about the market. We're pricing in a recession with stocks expecting about upwards of 15% earnings drop. But consensus, on the other hand, still has a lot of doubts about it. For more, let's bring in Bloomberg Intelligence's Director of Equity Strategy, Gina Martin-Adams. I Just for the record, I'm really glad I don't have your job right now because <laughs> this week has been nuts. What is your best guess as to what we're pricing in in terms of the economy at this moment? Yeah, we're definitely pricing some form of a recession. And there's a lot of argument to be made as to how deep the recession is going to be in earnings. But our fair value model says under virtually any rate scenario, we're pricing somewhere between a 5 and 15% decline in earnings over the next 12 months. So the market's gone a long way to pricing a decent amount of risk. I think the consensus of analysts doesn't see that recession coming at all. And this might be the sticking point as we go through earnings season is analysts probably need to rationally adjust their estimates lower. And stock prices usually struggle to perform particularly well in an environment of negative estimate revision. Boy, if I were a CFO or an investor relations officer, I would recommend you can kitchen sink it here yeah. if you want. You yeah. can really just toss in everything, take your guidance down. If there's any write-offs you have to take, True. take your write-offs. And I think a lot of folks would then say, okay, we're positioned for when things do turn around. What are you looking for in this quarterly earnings season? Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of really interesting things to come out of this earnings season. First, on the quarter alone... I do think we can continue to see a lot of currency commentary and currency volatility. Right. You know, what's interesting about currency is it can it can be blamed for a lot of woes and investors <laughs> won't necessarily blame the company for those woes. So, in an environment where the dollar surged as much as it did so far this year, you can expect currency to become a big issue. Obviously, corporates have been commenting about inflation for about a year now, so certainly everyone's on guard for what they're saying about inflation, but for all intents and purposes, now the inflation story is, okay, inflation is rough. 
but it's starting to get very slowly better. What's that going to mean for your margins? And I think that the margin outlook is so compelling and interesting right now. The consensus is actually expecting the second half of 2022 to be the worst of the worst for margins. And inflation pressures easing to improve the margin scenario going into 2023. Will that or will that won't happen is a really key question to ask this season. So some of the numbers we've gotten have been really good. Like yep. Delta's outlook, really good. Pepsi, really good. Organic yeah. revenue, like pricing control, pricing power. We were kind of expecting the big downward revision to happen in the second quarter earnings yeah. season. We didn't get it. We're now expecting it to happen in this earnings season. Is it possible that doesn't happen? Yeah, it's totally possible. And the problem is, I think, it really is a degree, a matter of degree, because downward revisions have happened to a large degree. Recall back in July, analysts were expecting 10% earnings growth in the third quarter they're now expecting two. That's a pretty magnificent drop in growth expectations, but the market has priced for much, much more. And I think that that's the key is the market itself prices for a much greater decline. This happened to us going into the second quarter earnings season too. Remember how much of a lift stocks got out of earnings in the month Mm -hmm. of July because analysts had drastically marked down expectations headed into that quarter. Companies were able to beat them. Even with the degree of negativity out there, our guidance model actually says companies are probably going to beat low expectations again in the third quarter because we've had this very big negative estimate revision. This is such an interesting climate in so many ways. We've already had a year's worth of margin deterioration before the recession even emerges in the economic data. Most economists aren't thinking we're going to fall into that sort of official type of recession until 2023. Yet there's a possibility that earnings are actually troughing this year. I think there's one big distinction to be made in the S&P 500, and that's between the companies that are going to have an inventory crisis and the companies that do not. It's really clear that goods-oriented industries, such as the retailers, such as semiconductors companies, such as auto companies and the like, are going to experience a really lumpy earnings cycle uh, over the next couple of quarters because of inventory excesses that will build as demand decelerates. And we're starting to see this emerge. But will the rest also have tremendous weakness is a really big question because services companies aren't experiencing the constraints that goods companies are right now. All right. If I were a portfolio manager, and thankfully for for the world, I am not, (laughs) my call would be the Fed Reserve risk, the interest rate risk, that is in the stocks or darn near into the stocks. The last shoe to drop for me is the earnings. I need the world to readjust their earnings outlook. Then I start to thinking about, what do I want to buy? What are the sectors that you think, when this thing does turn around, when the prices is in everything on the downside, here are some places you're going to want to look. Yeah. So places I want to look are places that are very cyclically sensitive, historically leaders in the early part of an economic recovery. So that would be financials, industrials, and discretionary most profoundly. I still think that you want to lean for this cycle for the longer term toward value and away from growth, mostly because all of the the discounts are really available still in value securities. They're still somewhat sheltered from pretty predominant inflation risks that I don't think are going to naturally just vanish, even with a very, very tight Fed policy. So there are a lot of opportunities emerging, and many sectors are actually trading at pretty tremendous discounts now, most of them value-oriented, of course. But value and cyclical uh, performance tend to go hand-in-hand at this stage of the cycle. Gina, thanks a lot. Gina Martin-Adams, Bloomberg Intelligence's director.
director of equity strategy. Coming up on the program, we look at Adobe's downfall and where tech fund managers may go next. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 13 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Well, the plunge in Adobe's valuation since the announcement of its Figma acquisition could raise Microsoft standings among tech mutual funds and ETFs. That's according to Anurag Rana, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst for Technology. Anurag, thanks so much uh, for joining us here. Talk to us about, first, Adobe. I'm looking at the stock, terrible performance. Talk to us about its performance and this acquisition. What is Figma and what's wrong? So, Paul, if we go back to the history of Adobe, this has been one of the darlings of Wall Street in the software world for the last decade. The company underwent a massive transformation under the current CEO 10 years ago, but they moved on to a different business model, looked at subscriptions. First, this growth slowed, margin went down, but then over the next decade, the margins expanded from 29% to 46%, the best in the industry. The growth rate was really good, about 20%. And, you know, they also have one of the best products in the software space. I would argue after Excel, these guys have the stickiest products in the software industry with Photoshop and PDF. So that's the background of it. And, you know, one of the things we had said that um, was that they are coming to a point where it's no longer going to be a 20% growth story. This is going to be more a 10 to 15% growth story. And right around that time, you know, you, the company decided to go out and buy Figma, and that has really hurt their valuation. And I think that's going to be really problematic from them from a valuation point of view, from a visibility point of view. I was going to say, so is that correct? Like the, how the market re-rated them? Was that an accurate assessment of what Adobe's up against? Yeah, I think so, because you're not, now what's going to happen is you're not going to see any margin expansion uh, anytime soon. In fact, after the deal is closed, which is going to take some time, at least a year in our view, um, after that for at least two years, there's going to be margin degradation. You're going to have low double-digit growth at best, 
without any margin expansion means earnings growth is not going to be there. Uh, so, I mean, there is not much to like at this point, at least for the next few years. And then the CEO's credibility is online. Now, you know, he was really one of the biggest champions in the software world and had turned Adobe around a decade ago. But buying a company at 50 times forward annual recurring revenue, at least 50 times, paying $20 billion for an asset that was just worth $10 billion a year ago. I mean, they have a lot to explain to the investors at this point. So as I said, this was a high-quality name, one of the highest-quality names in software. And the, the valuation degradation means that investors or mutual funds will have to figure out what else to make their core holdings, and uh, you know, which is why we think Microsoft could benefit just because of that. Isn't Microsoft a core holding of pretty much anybody who remotely identifies as a growth investor? No, it's a fair point, Paul. But what happens is when you have a company like Adobe where the market cap is actually not as big as Microsoft, you know, they, you know, it's, it's right now it's only about 135 billion, but even at about 200 billion, you know, it's so small compared to a Microsoft, which is, you know, now closer to 2 trillion or it was at least at one point. From that point, we have seen an overweightage of Adobe in so many funds because of that aspect hmm. of their ability to, you know, show that level of growth rate and margin expansion. So does that have to be reshuffled now because that will all be re-rated? You know, the purpose of our note is that we think that currently, if you look at the software space in the large cap world, there are only a handful of clean stories, and Microsoft being one of them. Um, Adobe used to be one, and I think they have some uh, points to prove to investors that this is a good acquisition for them in the long run. There is another company called ServiceNow. That's, I think, also a good story, but the, the issue over there is it's just priced at such a high level. Uh, you know, if you look at it on a price-to-sales basis, it's over 10 times. If you look at price-to-earnings basis, it's over 40 times. So, you know, those stories, and then you have Salesforce and Workday, and both of them are also grappling with some issues of their own. So from that point, we think, you know, uh, Microsoft, I think, raises a little bit towards the top when you look at different metrics, whether it's margins or growth. Hey, Anurag, let's step back a little bit. I think one of the things we learned once again is that inflation is still a thing out there and that the Federal Reserve is going to need to remain you know, fairly aggressive in fighting this inflation via higher interest rates. Can big, high-growth tech names that you cover so well, can they perform in that kind of environment? Paul, we just did around a big scenario of all the software companies, about 100 software companies. And Right now, they are trading 30% below their pre-pandemic averages. I'm actually even taking out all the valuation upside they saw during the pandemic. Mm. Even when I look at it from 2017 to 2020, you know, they are 30% below at an average or an median. Uh, but the point is, it's going to be very difficult for all of them to show any kind of a multiple rebound unless this inflation thing comes under control. Because if rates continue to rise, it has a much more dampening impact on high growth stocks because of the discount rate issue uh, than anything else. Mm -hmm. But having said that, I mean, this is one space software where no matter what happens, they're still going to show double digit growth next year on the top line. This is one of the fundamentally most sound sectors out there. Okay, so you bring up something really interesting. So we have rising inflation and input costs uh, on the one hand, then you have the underlying demand on the other hand, and then you have just what's happening with growth stocks as the Fed raises rates. From what you're saying, it seems like this is purely a macro-driven story rather than a micro-story. Is that true? 
Oh, it is absolutely true. It is all macro-driven. This is one space that does not get impacted by inflation. Companies do not go out and look for a cheaper software package. All they do is they just push it out by another year to upgrade something that if they don't need to. Now, what happens with that, and we saw that during the pandemic, whatever pushes we saw going for any of the software spending, we saw them come back with a vengeance the year after. So let's say it's a sake of argument that software spending is growing between 12 and 15 percent. Let's say next year it only grows 8 to 10 percent. Our thesis is the year after that, it's going to rebound at a much faster pace than that average because there is no way but for people to upgrade their systems and become more digital. Yeah, it's interesting to see. I mean, it's been a long time, but you know, I guess investors are trying to get a sense of, okay, I know where these things historically traded when interest rates were at or near zero. But now that we've got a two-year yield at north of 4%, where do they trade in that kind of environment, assuming we're going to be there for a while? No, fair point, Paul. But if you look at it, you know, you're absolutely right about the two-year at 4.4. But if you look at it, the 10-year still at about 3.9. So the question you have to ask yourself, if you buy any asset, any income-generating asset at the right multiple, and that asset itself grows every year between 10 to 15%, then I think you'd be better off buying a business rather than putting your money in treasuries. All right, good stuff. That's <laughs> clearly what the market's trying to figure out here. Microsoft, we are just talking about that and that early sell-off after the CPI data. It hit a 52-week low. Interesting to note there. All right, our thanks to Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Technology Analyst, Anurag Rana. All right, coming up on the program, we're going to discuss the latest Ferrari vehicle. We just can't say the word. And how it's speeding <laughs> past its competition. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via VIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. And I'm Alex Steele. It's 25 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. We'll be here each and every week at this time, tapping into our Bloomberg Intelligence analysts covering some 2,000 companies and 130 industries worldwide. So in case you didn't know, Ferrari has their latest SUV. I'm not going to say the name. I'm going to let the experts say the name. What do you think about that? How about this? Can I give it a Yeah, try? yeah, yeah. Do it. Puro Sangue V12. Ooh, and you have an accent going? Si. All right. So Puro Sangue V12. That is the latest SUV from Ferrari. Most expensive, most profitable SUV on the market. That's according to Bloomberg analysis. But what's driving the data behind that luxury vehicle? We heard to join us is Michael Dean, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior European Automotive Analyst. Michael, did we get the name right, first of all? Yeah, I think so. That was a pretty good attempt. Puro Sangue. Okay. We just called it an SUV. Yes. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. An SUV. Okay, so uh, what's the data behind this vehicle at this point? Yeah, so it's a very important car for Ferrari. It's, it's priced at €390,000, so higher than we thought. It's the most expensive luxury SUV out there. They're probably going to sell about 3,000 units um, a year for about four years. So it's going to bring in about $4.4 billion of revenue, about $2 billion of EBITDA. And it's the car that's going to push the group's EBITDA to over €2 billion Euros, uh, uh, next year and help enhance the margin as well. So a very important car for Ferrari. Who do they think is going to buy this thing? Well, so, so it's got a four-year production run, and they say they're pretty close to it being sold out. Really? So they've got plenty of sellers. It's going to be female customers, so enhancing the diversity of, of their brand. And, yeah, it's pretty much sold out. So if you want to get one, uh, Paul, you, you need to be quick. Well, I got the strong dollar behind me. Does that help? Good point. I think it does, yeah. <laughs> So then at that point, it might make it cheaper for 
Paul to buy it now, but if he wanted to, could he? Not just from a how much are they making, but a supply chain issue. Yes. Yeah, so if you're quick enough, it's more of an order backlog issue. And it's a big car as well. So analysts got to see it in July at the Capital Markets Day. It's a big SUV. So it's going to appeal to the U.S. market in particular. It's going to appeal to the Chinese market. So Chinese wealthy buyers prefer four doors. So it's the only four-door Ferrari available. So given it's only 12,000 units globally over four years, there's going to be a huge amount of demand for this car. What other vehicle would this vehicle, this Ferrari SUV, compete against? Is there even a market here? Or are they kind of defining a new market? Yeah, so, you know, the fastest growing luxury segment is the SUV segment. So you had originally the Bentayga by Bentley. That's selling hugely well, probably 7,000 units this year. You've got the Lamborghini Euros, again, very successful, 6,000 units. You've now got Aston Martin with their DBX SUV, and they've just launched a DBX 707. So it was the fastest SUV out there Hmm. with a 0-60 time in 3.3 seconds. But the Ferrari now matches that, and it's actually twice, almost twice as expensive as the DBX. And the actual profitability of one pure Sangway is equivalent to the base price of a DBX. So it's entering, as I say, the fastest growing market. Uh, You've also got the Rolls-Royce Cullinan out there. So it's a market they need to be in. They're so pretty, too, honestly. (laughs) They're just so pretty. Um, Can you walk me through the whole EV, non-EV thing? I'm assuming all the new cars that these guys make have to be EVs, right? Yeah, so when they announced the powertrain for the Pure Sangway six months ago, there was disappointment because it's not going to be electrified. It's not? Really? No. Yeah, so it's a 6.5-litre V12. And luckily enough, when we had the Capital Markets Day in June, the company provided comfort that they are transitioning to BEVs, so they're going to have 5% of their sales BEVs by 2026, 20% by 2030. So that kind of satisfied investors that they are transitioning. But what it does, because it's a pure V12, it's very, very profitable. And what Ferrari is trying to do, and the other luxury car makers, is sell as many V12s as they can while emission legislation allows them to. So I'm looking at the stock here, uh, down about 18% year-to-date, so doing better than the S&P 500, for example, and on a trailing 12-month basis, up a little bit, actually. But it's got a P.E. multiple of 37, 38, so that feels like a luxury multiple to me. Is that, in fact, how the market looks at it? Yeah, so certainly not at first. So this is interesting for Porsche, having initially been listed. So Ferrari wasn't at first given that luxury multiple, but over a couple of years, it was being compared to the likes of Hermes. And if it meets its targets for 2026, it's going to have an EBITDA margin of about 40%. So that's getting very close to Hermes. And it trades on a 25% discount to the French company. So, yes, it's very much valued as a a luxury car company. And the idea for their new five-year plan is to get much closer to Hermes in terms of EBITDA margin. That's huge. 40% EBITDA target. That's amazing. What do you think are going to be the headwinds to the company getting there? Yeah, so they're in a very good position because, you know, it's not just the pure Sangway, but um, the Daytona, which is their next limited edition car, is completely sold out. Most of their vehicles in the current production run are sold out. So if we enter a global recession, which seems likely, they're in a very good position. Pricing-wise, as we've seen with the price with the pure Sangway, they can charge whatever they like for some of these cars. 
Hey, Michael, really great perspective. We love having you on the show. Thanks so much, Michael Dean, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior European Automotive Analyst. Coming up on the program, we talk bonds and why performance expectations are improving for the year ahead. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through VI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 39 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. So rising yields have eliminated almost $13 trillion of fixed income market value in 2022. Yet Bloomberg year ahead forecast signals strengthening risk return asymmetry for bond investors. So for more on this, let's welcome Bloomberg Intelligence Chief Emerging Market Credit Strategist Damian Sassauer. Are you coming on to pitch EM bonds right now? No, 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 no. Far from it. <laughs> okay, uh, good. Alex, we're not pitching EM. In fact, EM local debt is probably expected to be one of the first performers over the next 12 months. But we're not going to talk about that now. We're going to talk about you know U.S. dollar-denominated debt. We're going to talk about treasuries. More importantly, we're going to talk about IG credit because what we do here every quarter at Bloomberg Intelligence is we take the 12-month total return estimates on a forward-looking basis from all of our strategists covering all the major asset classes across fixed income. And what we find is based on our U.S. Treasury yield estimates, which my good friend Ira Jersey likes to put together for us, we've been able to reverse engineer what we believe to be um, appropriate returns for the next year. And if, you know, all else being equal, it looks like it's going to be a credit story and it's going to be a U.S. dollar denominated one at that. All right, Dan, I'm looking through your research report here and one section grabbed my attention. Risk return trade-off may be too good to ignore. What do you mean by that and kind of what do you look at to come to that type of conclusion? Great question, Paul. We take those 14 asset classes and we constrain them, you know, as would any sensible human being who doesn't want to invest too much in an illiquid asset class like high yield or UK gilt, which is down 40% year to date. And so what we do is we create these constraints, we shock the portfolio, and what you arrive at based again on our strategist's 12-month total return estimates is um, a 10% return with a 6% vol, which really isn't that bad. That's like a 1.4 sharp ratio over the next year, which is actually really good. Now, admittedly, our U.S. Treasury yield estimates, let's talk about the two-year, is 291 in 12 months' time. Right now, we're at what? 
442, I think, mm-hmm. on the U.S. two-year. So, you know, that's incredibly bullish, and it, it kind of extends out along the curve. I think we have the 10-year at 289 right now, the 10 years at 393. So, you know, basically what we're calling for, guys, is we're calling for a hard landing, right? A hard landing scenario where the Fed has to move and move in the other direction. And and so, you know, that is, in effect, what we believe is, is going to happen. And if that does materialize, yeah, we could see some very decent returns in dollar-denominated U.S. debt. So if a hard landing doesn't happen, then you could actually see good returns. If a hard landing does happen, is it about also then just protecting capital rather than making capital? And if that's the case, how do you do that? How do you, who told you that, you know, if a hard landing doesn't happen, you're going to make good returns? I, I, I'd like to speak to that person. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm just flipping what you just said. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, I mean, hopefully equities do rally in that environment. You know, I mean, obviously earnings lead. But, you know, we're the fixed income guys over here. We're the bearish. So, you know, in a bearish scenario where, you know, things get really, really challenging, really, really tough, and inflation comes off for all the wrong reasons, that would be really good for fixed income. And it would be really good for the dollar. So you take those two in conjunction and what you're looking at that is, you know, basically an allocation that is heavy U.S. treasuries, heavy U.S. investment grade, heavy U.S. mortgages. And as you move out along the efficient frontier, only then can you maybe see yourself kind of getting into some other, you know, less liquid asset classes, so to speak. But the ones that are really going to suffer, in our opinion, over the next 12 months, interestingly, are JGBs and China government bonds, right? Really Asian debt, right? Asian denominated debt. And so in years past, what we've seen 2015, 2018, other years where the Fed's been tightening, those asset classes have outperformed. And this time around, we're seeing exactly the opposite. They're going to probably underperform in that environment. All right. So, Damian, also in this report, you've got a really cool exhibit that I like, particularly for somebody who's not a fixed income investor. It kind of gives me a snapshot, which is your total return by fixed income asset class chart going back to 2010. And year to date, 2022, you can't find anything there. So, for somebody like me who hears that, my initial thought is, I got to go out and buy some bonds here. I mean, it's never been this bad. That means it's got to be the mother of all opportunities. Is anybody saying that now, or is it just too early? You know, a lot of people are afraid to say that. We are saying that, you know, and quite frankly, if you look back at our analysis, because we do this every quarter, Paul, you know, back at the end of last year, we were the ones who said, we cannot envision a scenario where you're going to get a positive total return. This is going back to, you know, the middle of last year, where you're going to get a positive total return in fixed income. Now, admittedly, we did not expect losses like this. (laughs) We're looking at losses. I mean, UK gilts are down 42% in dollar terms. That is, But can you really look at the gilt market? That just seems a whole crazy world unto itself. But Fair point. Well, any any US any Moody's non-dollar KGBs are down twenty four percent. European uh, Treasuries are down thirty percent. You know these are huge numbers, and I mean U.S. Treasuries alone are down thirteen and a half percent. And so there's really nowhere to hide if you're a fixed income manager year to date. But we don't like to look in the past. We like to look in the future, and mm-hmm. in the future things are looking a little rosier. Well, also, I mean, and I hate to be this person that says this, but you're also talking time frame, right? Like you're not going to buy one thing and then like sell it a year later, right? Like if you're going to buy, you're like, oh look, I can get almost five percent on my ten year. I think the goal of this deck is really to show you a relative value across fixed income asset classes. You're right. The level and the percentage differential, the gain or the loss, you know, it's almost a dart on a board. And I'll be the first one to admit that. But fundamentally, what we're trying to do is look for relative value across fixed income. And where should you go in the scenario that we're predicting? And the scenario we're predicting is one where, you know, yeah, the dollar is going to remain strong and it's going to be tough for the global economy. And in that environment, fixed income should outperform. It's very difficult, though, and and I'll be the first one to admit this, to call a currency, to know where King Dollar is headed next. Mm. Thanks a lot. We really appreciate it. (laughs) Damien Sassauer, Bloomberg Intelligence Chief Emerging Markets Credit Strategist. All right, let's turn now to housing, where new home prices are poised to drop. 
but will they drop low enough to return the monthly payment to income ratio to historical averages? We got Bloomberg Intelligence U.S. home building analyst Drew Redding. He's with us now to answer that question. So, Drew, interest rates are going up, mortgage rates are north of 6%. Can I afford to buy a house? Can people afford to buy houses now? So, believe it or not, mortgage rates are actually above 7%, um, with the oh, latest boy. data we're seeing. And the U.S. housing market is not priced for a 7% mortgage rate, and we're seeing the impact of that. You know, as you alluded to, the monthly payment on a new single-family home is 70% higher than it was last year. So the, the monthly payment relative to income ratio is the highest it's been since the early 90s. Things have got significantly harder out there in the market. Mm-hmm. We're seeing it in the volume numbers. So how much do you think that home prices, I'll let you decide existing or new or regional, how much do home prices have to come down to compensate for the higher rates to stabilize the market? Sure. So we'll stick with the new home market for now. And if you were to assume that incomes stayed at their current level and rates stayed at 7%, new home prices would need to fall about 30% to get back to that historical payment to income average. Now, that's not necessarily our forecast because we do think that you're going to continue to see income growth into next year. And ultimately, you know, we don't think that 7% is the appropriate longer term mortgage rate. So you know, if you look at some of the forecasts out there over the next year, the culture rates to pull back somewhere in the, the mid 5% range. If incomes grow at current trends, that implies that prices need to come down about 10%. So we think that's mm-hmm. actually a reasonable explanation, you know, over the next 12 to 18 months or so. Well, Drew, I don't know if you know this, I consider myself a little bit of a real estate tycoon. And just like <laughs> Elon Musk, I went asset light over the past couple of years. We sold our house. Uh, now the question is, I think I can redeploy some of that into maybe something down around the Jersey Shore, and I think I can get it a lot cheaper. Why wouldn't housing prices fall, you know, 20, 30%? Because they were just crazy high in the last couple of years of the pandemic. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, talking about falling home prices has always been a, a taboo subject, and people think they can only go up. But, you know, as we saw, that's not the case. Um, there's a couple of factors, I think, that will prevent prices from, you know, falling as much as we saw during the last downturn. The one point is that we still have a very tight housing supply, meaning there's not a whole lot of inventory out there. But I think more importantly is the fact that in this market, we're not going to have the same type of forced selling activity that we did last time. Mm -hmm. The use of adjustable rate mortgages is significantly lower than it was during the financial crisis. We're at about probably 10% versus anywhere from 35 to 40%. So you don't have people with that same exposure to higher rates. So Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people who are current homeowners, they have very strong equity and they're not going to be forced to sell. The people who do have more of a concern, unfortunately, are those who bought in, you know, late 21 and and 2022. Those are the ones you'd likely see in a negative equity position if prices were to fall 10 to 15%. Presumably if they'd sold, though if they have to sell like next year or something. And such a great rate uh, point on sure. the floating rates, because that's what the UK is in so much trouble with because yeah, of that sure. and, and the adjustable mortgage rates that they have. Are there certain areas of the US do you think are going to recover better or that will continue to see housing inflation? Well, unfortunately, the problem with the market and what could potentially happen with prices is a nationwide thing because of the interest rate. So it's, it's impacting buyers across the US. You know, when we look at what markets in the country have kind of started to crack first, it's really those on the West Coast. Um, so I think California markets in, you know, Seattle, San Francisco, San Diego, Denver, and then a lot of the boom-bust markets who 
you know, tend to lead in price and volume on the way up, but also fall the furthest and fastest on the way down. So markets like Las Vegas and Phoenix. So we do think it is something that, you know, in time is going to impact the entire country. Hey, Drew, just real quick, 30 seconds. Will your home builders ever build affordable housing, like starter mm-hmm. homes, the three to four bedroom thing, or is it just McMansions all the way? Yeah, it's a good question. Over the last couple of years, the, the public builders had actually pivoted a lot of their business towards the lower end of the market. And you saw the premium of new homes relative to the existing market fall to its lowest level. Um, the problem over the last couple of years, as you guys are well aware, is inflation. It's become so much more expensive to build a home. Uh, you know, it's not only the, the product inputs, but it's labor, it's land. So it's certainly got a lot harder, but I think they're going to have to find creative ways, whether it's you know, with density, with lot sizes, to try to bring down those average selling prices. Man, I'm dying to sell this apartment that I have for my mother-in-law. Anyway, that's not going to happen anytime soon. All right, Drew, thanks a lot. Drew Redding, Bloomberg Intelligence, U.S. Home Building Analyst. That's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. And remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 57 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.